just a word before we get to Mark this morning. Um, some of you receive our emails. Uh, if you don't, um, probably be good to get on that list so that you can know about different things that are happening. But uh, one of the things you can be in prayer for today um, is Joe. Now, Joe, I'm very sorry, but I'm going to butcher your last name. Watoz, Watoziak, how do you say it? You all know who I'm talking about, Joe W. Joe, um, you, Joe's mother passed away um, this weekend, and they're having the, uh, they'll be at the funeral home today from, I think, noon until 9 p.m. this evening. And so uh, be in prayer for them, make it over there to visit. And I believe the funeral's tomorrow. Is that correct? Um, visitations today, the funeral is tomorrow, right? One to nine today. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, so you can be in prayer for them and encourage them and, uh, and let them know that you're doing that. All right. Open up to Mark chapter eight. Mark chapter eight is where we're going to be this morning. As you're opening there, I want to ask you a question. What are we trying to accomplish as a church body? What are we all about? Why are we here? What are we trying to do? I hope you think of your life in this church body as more than just showing up on Sunday to receive a sermon or a lecture or teaching. But what are we trying to accomplish as a church body? What is our goal? Well, I hope that you notice on the back of our bulletin, our goal is written every single week. If you have your bulletin, pull it out. I want to show you this. It's right there at the bottom on the back, but this is what we exist for. This is why we have a building and why we pay electricity and why we have elders and why we have children's ministry and everything that we do is aimed toward this goal. All right. This is our mission statement. Let me read it to you. Woodhaven Bible Church exists to make followers of Christ who worship God, connect with one another and serve the church and the world. That's our mission statement. That's what we're here for. So why even have a mission statement? Well, I don't know about you, but I tend to get distracted and I tend to uh, go off into side issues that aren't the main thing and that aren't as important as other things. I need parameters to help me stay focused on what I am here to do and what I'm supposed to be accomplishing. I leak information. And I leak enthusiasm. And so I need something to direct me. And that's what our mission statement is aiming to do, is to keep us focused on the main thing. And you can see there in our mission statement, if you look back at it, the goal of our church. If we had to summarize the goal of our church body, it would be we exist, we are here to make followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's that's our goal. That's why we exist. Everything else is to come under that mission and that goal, to make followers of Christ. Now, how do we come to that conclusion? Why phrase it that way? Well, as elders, we asked the question, what are we here for? And we kept going back to a passage in Scripture that we've talked about before. It's a passage in Matthew 28. This is where Jesus commissions his disciples to go out, and he gives them their mission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You can see there the main thing that his disciples are to do is to make other disciples. They are to reproduce themselves. That's their mission. They are to make disciples, and that goes on down through the hundreds of years to get to us, and now we have that same commission. We are to make followers of Christ. 
to make disciples of Christ. And that really just continues what Jesus began in his earthly ministry. And you've seen this in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus calls these 12 disciples to be with him, to go where he goes, to be trained by him. And then ultimately, he sends them out to do the same thing, to make more disciples. It's reciprocal. Now, as you hear me talk through that, and as you see our mission statement and you read the Great Commission to make disciples, to make followers of Christ, all of that, I hope that you're thinking and asking the question, what does it actually mean to be a follower of Christ? I mean, it sounds nice. I'm a disciple. I'm a follower of Christ. But what does that look like in daily life? What does it mean for us 2,000 years later to actually be disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, we're entering into a section of the Gospel of Mark where that question will be center stage. That's essentially what we're going to be talking about over the next several months as we examine Mark 8, 22, all the way till the end of chapter 10. This is right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, and this question, what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Is center stage. This is it. And I want to show you how this section fits into the broader structure of the book of Mark, okay? This is important. When you're studying a book of the Bible, you need to understand how the author organizes his material. The biblical authors are not haphazard. They don't just throw things together in a random sort of way and spin them together, and then out comes this book. Mark thought very intentionally about how to structure and what material to choose to put in his gospel. The other writers did the same thing. An author can communicate an awful lot by how they arrange their material and how they put it together, and Mark does that here. So, obviously, the Gospel of Mark centers on Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the main character in this gospel, and the whole book points to him. But the book is structured around two sections, all right? Pretty simple. First of all, what we've been studying over the last months has been this first section. This gives us the authoritative ministry of Jesus the Messiah. We are being introduced to Jesus and who he is in this first section. And then you get to this pinnacle point in chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, where we're going to start today and then next week. And everything shifts And because of his authoritative ministry, because of who he is, now he begins the journey toward the cross and to being the suffering son of God, who's the servant of the Lord. The high point of the book is chapter 8, verse 29, where that profession is made by Peter. And then everything after that, you'll see it dramatically shifts to move toward the cross. There aren't as many miracles in the second half of the book. It's amazing. Everything now is focused toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. So how does our portion here fit into these two sections? Well, it begins this second section of the gospel with this profession by Peter of who Jesus is. And basically, the whole gospel of Mark is telling us because of who Jesus is, Now you must live as disciples of him in a particular way. Here are the implications. This section tells us these are the implications of what it means to be a disciple because of what you've seen in the first half of this book. Because of this vision of Christ, of his miracles, of his teaching, of his healing, all of this, 
you will be shaped by that to then follow him in a certain way. It's like a piece of metal that has been fashioned by a blacksmith. Disciples will be shaped and formed by who Jesus is and what he does. And that's really the message of the Gospel of Mark. And this section brings that to light in significant ways. But you're going to see throughout this section, almost humorously, that the disciples do not see this very clearly. They're not making this connection because they really don't fully grasp who Jesus is as the suffering Son of God, the servant of the Lord, and therefore they don't really know what it means to follow him. They're like a blind man. They need help clarifying exactly who Christ is and what it means to follow him, and we, by extension, I think, need help as well. And that's what this section is going to help with. So today, we're going to look at chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. It's this great little story here of a blind man receiving sight. And you'll see how this fits. But we're going to learn some important lessons from this little story and then from the whole way this is set up, this, this whole section, how it fits. We're going to learn some important lessons about discipleship. So today, I'm going to give you three lenses to clarify our vision of discipleship. All right? Three lenses to clarify our vision of discipleship. The first one of these is that discipleship is a journey, and you need to understand this. When you think about discipleship, it is a journey. So keep in mind this overall outline of Mark, right? You've got the authoritative ministry of Jesus presenting who he is, and then you've got him as the suffering servant going toward Jerusalem, going toward the cross. But in that first section, he's been revealing who he is. I mean, we've seen it. He's been teaching He's been doing miracles. He's been uh, shown as having more authority than the scribes. He's dumbfounded the religious leaders. He's controlled nature by the sound of his voice. This whole first portion of the book has presented the character and the person of Jesus Christ. And all during that, with him as the main character, you've had the disciples watching. They've been along for the ride, haven't they? I mean, right away in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus begins calling disciples to himself and tells them to follow him, to be with him. And as you see the disciples, if you were to go back and read the first eight chapters and pay careful attention to the disciples, as you're reading, you would would get a pretty complex picture of these guys as a character in in this gospel. On the one hand, they are committed to Jesus. I mean, When he calls, they come, and they follow him, and they're with him, and they're supportive of him, and they're willing to go after him. But on the other hand, as they're following him, they're very slow to grasp who he is, and they struggle, and it's as if they're not seeing him very clearly. They're blind in some ways. And so let me show you, take a little walk through this gospel, and let me show you how the disciples have had both things happening to them. They're willingly following, and they're struggling to see clearly. Go back to to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to show you both sides of this response to Jesus. I think both of these sides characterize us. But you can see in chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Right? Good. And then that continues on with other guys doing the exact same thing. Now flip over to chapter 3, verse 13. Willingly following him, 
Verse 13, he went up on the mountain, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. And here's why, so that they might be with him and might, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so the disciples are with him. They're watching him. They even have this official designation as apostles, and they have authority to cast out demons. And so they're with Jesus, and they're experiencing all of these things. But somewhere along the way, in the midst of all this, they, they're pretty confused about what's going on. Flip over to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They're caught in a storm. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. And they panic. And Jesus wakes up, and you know the story. He rebukes the wind, and everything gets calm. And look at chapter 4, verse 40. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It's like, after all that's happened, you guys still aren't trusting and believing who I am? Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I mean, they react with shock and fear rather than trust in Jesus. And they're even asking, oh my goodness, who is this guy who is able to calm the storm and the wind with his voice? And so they're just not getting it. Their, their vision is cloudy and confused. And if you flip over a couple chapters later in chapter 6, the disciples have this experience of watching Jesus feed 5,000 people with just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And then after that, after watching that happen, they're out on the Sea of Galilee again in the middle of the night, and Jesus walks on the water across the sea to them in the middle of the night, and they have the same sort of reaction. Look at verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately, this is verse 50 of chapter 6, he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And then look at this explanation by Mark at the end, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And so they're following Jesus, they're able to cast out demons, they're committed to him, and yet they don't quite see. They don't quite understand who he is. So after all this, flip over to chapter 8. They witness another feeding miracle. Jesus this time feeds, feeds 4,000 people. Same sort of thing happens. Very similar miracle, this time in Gentile territory. And they still aren't getting it. Look at verse 14. After that, they get in a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are, you, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet 
understand. So they're still blind to who he is, and they're blind to what these miracles are truly teaching about Jesus. And so right after this, we get this little story about a blind man being healed of his blindness, and his healing happens in stages. And I don't think this is accidental. Look at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So the conversation in verses 14 to 21 happens on a boat, like we saw. And they get to Bethsaida on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as is very typical, people bring a blind man to Jesus, bring other sick people to him. But this time, a blind man, and they want this blind man to be healed. This is the first instance of a blind man being healed in the Gospel of Mark, but it's not the last. And you'll see where the other one is placed a little bit later, and it's amazing. But look what Jesus does in verse 23. So they bring this guy to him, and he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So he moves away from the crowds. He takes him out of the village, presumably to keep this miracle as quiet as possible so he's not mobbed by people at this point. But I want you to notice how Jesus handles this, which is quite different than other miracles that he's done. Typically, He touches someone, he speaks an authoritative word to someone, and that brings healing. But here, we see him ask a question. We look down at the end of verse 23. Do you see anything? And I don't think it's coincidence that almost this exact same question was just asked regarding the disciples in verse 18 of this chapter. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? It's almost the same thing. And I think this miracle is intended as almost a parable of what's happening with the disciples. It's an introduction to this whole section on discipleship. The disciples are entering into a journey of understanding, and they're not going to get it right away. And actually, it will be quite a while before they fully grasp it. But Jesus is going to slowly work with them in stages and bring them to the point of understanding who he is and what it means to be a disciple. So look at verse 24. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. What is that? I don't know if you've ever been to the eye doctor before and had your eyes dilated. Um, I've had this experience a couple times in my life. But when you have your eyes dilated, if you try to look at something up close, you cannot see clearly at all. It is a blur. And I don't know why they let you drive after this happens, but they are very confident that you're able to drive. And I think that's the experience of this man here. His vision is not clear. He sees movement. He sees dark shapes against maybe a bright sky, but he can't make out what they are. They just look like these massive blocks of darkness against the sky. And I think that's what's happening here. His vision is not fully clear yet. He can't make out the details. And this is the only miracle that Jesus does in stages like this, which is exactly how the disciples' understanding of who he is will come. They won't get it all at once. Look at verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. 
You can see there in verse 25, there are three ways to describe his vision being restored. His, his eyes were opened. He has unimpeded clarity now. He's been restored, which means it's the way things should be. He now can see as a fully functioning human being should be able to see. Now he can see clearly. And at the end, he sees everything clearly. Everything's back to the way it should be. And just like this man receives his sight in stages, the section that we're going to study, chapter 8, verse 22, all the way to chapter the end of chapter 10, is going to show the disciples being slowly instructed to bring clarity and vision to their understanding of Jesus and to their understanding of discipleship. They're going to be taught the full implications of what it means to be a disciple. Now, let's think about ourselves for just a second this morning. We are often this way. We have cloudy vision when it comes to Jesus and who he is and the implications of that for life as a disciple. We lack clarity what it means to really follow him and what that means for our daily lives. But I don't, I don't know whether it's an encouragement or a challenge, but this section is hard hitting when it comes to being a disciple, especially the text we're going to talk about next week. I mean, it is in your face. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because he is the suffering son of God. If you are truly his disciple, what happens to him will have to happen to you. You will have to lay down your life. You will have to take up your cross. You will have to deny yourself, and you will have to follow him. That's what it means to be a disciple. And that gets so cloudy in our vision sometimes in the world we live in, in the culture we're in, and we need clarity to be brought to us. And I'm hoping and praying that this passage, this next few weeks, will do that. But as we think about that, let's bring some clarity, hopefully, with our next lens here. Discipleship is a journey of understanding. It's a progression in our lives of what it really means to be a disciple and how we apply these things. But discipleship is also a relationship. It's about an individual, Jesus Christ, and it's centered on him. It's very easy when we think about life as a Christian, the Christian life. When we think about that, it's very easy to shift our focus and our attention away from a personal relationship with an individual, with Jesus Christ. It's easy to kind of think we're past that or that that's not the main thing. But this entire section puts the person and work of Jesus Christ on center stage in full display. And the way this section works it out is who he is determines how we live and shapes us. Who Jesus reveals himself to be in this book will make it so that you cannot remain the same. You must follow him and allow his person to shape your life. And so when you think about this little story here of this blind man being healed, when we read this story, it's not primarily about us and our discipleship. It's about who Jesus is. It's about his person and what this story tells us about who this man, Jesus Christ, is. So what does this tell us about Jesus? What do we learn about him from this story? It's a Christ-focused story. He's the one doing the miracle. We ought to learn about him. I want to show you another miracle in the Gospel of Mark that is very similar to this. All right? Flip back to chapter 7 and verse 31. And we just read the story about the blind man. But here, 
chapter 7 and verse 31, you're going to read a story about a deaf man. Okay, so blind and deaf, both of these miracles happen, and I want you to see how similar the wording is. And I think that's intentional. Verse 31, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And look at what happens. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him. The same thing happens in the story of the blind man. They begged him to lay his hand on him. And what does he do? He takes him aside from the crowd, taking him aside from the crowd privately. He put his fingers into his ears, and he he spits on him. The same thing that happens in the story of the blind man. And after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. He spoke plainly. He could see clearly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. The same thing that happens in verse 26 at the end of the story of the blind man. Don't even go back into the village. Don't tell anyone. But the more he charged him, them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished, verse 37, beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's interesting that both deafness and blindness are addressed in chapter 8, verse 18. Look there. Having ears, having eyes to having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Both of those are addressed there, and we have two miracles on either side of that happening, deafness and blindness. So what does it mean about an individual who can cure both deafness and blindness with his touch? Who is that type of person? Well, flip in your Bible back to Isaiah chapter 35. We've been told who this type of person will be that can do this. Isaiah chapter 35. Now, you probably have not read Isaiah 35 recently, but this passage was written hundreds of years before Jesus came onto the scene during the time of Jesus. And it was written at a time when Israel was struggling very much with their sin. And exile was coming their way. They're worshiping false gods, they're sinning, and God has promised exile to come to them. And this is a passage that is looking past that judgment, past the exile, and is saying to them, God is going to be faithful to his covenant to you, and he is going to return to you. He's not going to judge you forever, and he's going to do good to you as a nation. When is that going to happen? Let me read this to you. Verses 1 to 4. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Man, that's quite a promise. And the prophet is telling them God's going to come to you. And when he comes to you, verses 1 and 2, things are going to be made right again. That process is going to begin when God comes to you. Well, when will we know that God has come to us? Look at verse 5. Then. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf 
unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. When this process begins of setting things right, the blind will be made to see, and the deaf will be made to hear. And as we study this section, you're going to see that the responsibilities as disciples come directly from the fact that the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who fulfills these promises has shown up on the scene. If this person that is promised in Isaiah 35 is truly here, man, that means something for our lives as disciples. For these 12 men who were cloudy in their understanding of who he was, that means something significant for them and how they live. His identity shapes our experience. His identity shapes our experience. So to be a disciple means to know him. It's about him. It's a relationship with him. It's to delight in his glory and to value his worth as the one who saves. It's about him. Puritan writer John Owen said this, Some talk much of imitating Christ and following his example, but no man will ever become like him by trying to imitate his behavior in life if they know nothing of the transforming power of beholding his glory. Discipleship means seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, beholding that glory and authority and the way he went humbly to his death. It means being shaped by a vision of his glory. So what does that mean? How do we, what's it like to see glory? Well, Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So let's think about that for a moment. In a lesser way than the Son of God declares the glory of God. But let's, let's think for practical experience. What's it like to look at the heavens and see glory and recognize glory there? Well, think about the ocean. For a moment, what's it like to gaze at the ocean? Why do we go back to the ocean time and time again? It's because the ocean is beautiful, certainly. It's powerful. There's nothing quite like the power of the waves of the ocean crashing on the shore, the currents of the ocean. When you go to the ocean, you feel small next to the ocean. It's humbling to stand there and look out on this vast expanse of water and think this is just a tiny fraction of the water that is on our globe. Why do people write poems and songs about the ocean? Because it's glorious. There's something satisfying and awe-inspiring about standing on the shore looking at the ocean. It is glorious to behold the ocean. And that experience of beholding the glory of God in the ocean is just a microcosm of the experience of beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is where we're truly changed in shape. It's a microcosm of beholding the glory of Christ. 
Another author said this, once a believer has tasted this love of God in his soul, he can never rest content till he has it again and again. And that's why we go back to the ocean. And that's why we must go back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that encounter with glory will cause us to go back and it will shape us and it will change us. One of the best passages for this is 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. We become like him by beholding his glory from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that's why we can't be distracted into thinking that discipleship is about anything other than beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. It's knowing him, knowing his person and work, and letting that transform the way we live. It's a relationship. But none of us enter into that relationship based on our own merit, do we? Discipleship, thirdly, is a gift. It's a journey. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, beholding his glory. And you do not behold his glory based on your own merit. And I do not behold his glory based on my own merit. If you go back over to Mark chapter 8 again, maybe the most obvious thing about the healing of the blind man is that Jesus heals him based on his own grace. (laughs) This guy does nothing to earn it. He's not some sort of renowned scholar who can justify being healed from blindness. Jesus heals him because he's good and because he's gracious. And it's based on Jesus's power and authority that this man receives sight. Now, what's amazing about this is this story of blindness begins, blindness being healed, begins the section on discipleship. And I want you to go to the end of this section of discipleship. Chapter 10, verse 46. And look what we have here. And they came to Jericho. This is Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. This whole section of discipleship is a journey that he and his disciples are on. They came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, The son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, and look what he says, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. They called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And look at the response to blindness being healed. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That is what a disciple does. A disciple who has been given the gift of sight to see who Jesus truly is automatically follows him as we're going to see in these chapters. This is a fitting end to a section on discipleship. This is what disciples do. And so this whole section has been framed by two stories of blind men graciously receiving sight. And the whole thing indicates to us the way that's structured that the disciples don't currently grasp who he is, 
but they're going to. Over time, they'll get there. And they'll get there because God is gracious, Christ is patient, and we never move away from grace in our discipleship, do we? No matter how, no matter how many years you've been in the faith, if you've been saved 50, 60, 70 years, you should never move away from the fact that this is all a gift of grace. You are only here because of God's grace. You only have sight. You are only able to perceive the glory of Jesus Christ because it is a gift of grace to you and to me. Each person in here was born a rebel with a will that has been, that was stiffened against God. Each person in here was born under the dominion, under the rule and the enslavement of the evil one. And our hearts were blind to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We didn't care. We didn't want to care. We had no inkling to want to see the glory of Christ or even that it was there. We were running away from God down a path of complete rejection and animosity to him. That's the situation that each person in this room was born into. We were born enemies of God. But God, rich in grace and mercy, sent Jesus Christ to earth for the purpose of changing enemies into friends, for the purpose of taking people off of that path, running towards self-destruction, turning them around and putting them on the path of discipleship. God's grace literally turns us around 180 degrees and says, instead of going that direction, here's sight. You can see the glory of Christ. Follow me. Follow me this way. He puts us on the path of discipleship. And so if you are on this path of discipleship, it is a gift of grace to you from God this morning. No matter how long you've been on this path, it's still a miracle that we're there. It's an absolute miracle by God that we're there and that you're continuing to grow and continuing to grow on this journey and your sight is being made more and more clear and you're seeing Christ for who he is and you're seeing the implications of that for daily life. And that fact is a gift to be rejoiced in and celebrated each and every day. You are an enemy of God and you have been made a follower a follower of Christ. So, I'm looking forward to studying this section. It's, it's powerful, it's challenging, it's helpful, and the stakes are high. Significant. For if you truly wish to continue on the path as a disciple of Jesus Christ, the stakes are high. Indifferent disciples don't exist. That's what this, this passage will tell us. The call to discipleship is serious. It's weighty, but at the same time as it's serious and weighty, and at the same time as you and I have to die to ourselves, we have to climb up on that cross, the grace and mercy of God to enable that and to continue to grow us are abundant beyond measure in this process of discipleship. And so, again, it's a process where we look to Jesus to enable and we have confidence in him that he will complete the work that he began. That if he turns you around and he puts you on that path of discipleship, that he will help you to take every single step along that path until he calls you home to glory. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sight that we've been given. Oh, we thank you for your grace and mercy in giving 
blind eyes a vision of the glory of Christ. And I pray that even now, as we've just talked about these things and thought through this passage of Scripture, I pray that you would open our eyes even further. Help us to see who you are and help us to see the implications of that for daily life. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, even as we'll celebrate now by taking the Lord's Supper. It's in his name we pray.